As mentioned, we're going to be in Colossians 3.22 and following down through chapter 4 and verse 1. Um, very practical section of God's word, and so I invite you to turn there. There are printed messages at uh, both exits and online. You can access them there, and there are um, audio messages online as well, and you should find an outline in your bulletin. We're working through Paul's letter to the Colossians. Some have asked me where I'm going from here. I think I I'm going to do First and Second Thessalonians next, and I'm trying to work on a series on the church, but I'm not quite ready with that. Appreciate your prayers as always, um, that God would be gracious to me as I prepare these messages and that they would be used of him. I do get emails and sometimes phone calls weekly from people around the Uh, globe literally asking questions or needing counsel on things they've read in the messages so again appreciate your prayers for all of that here's what Paul says slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth not with external service as those who merely please men but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, and I don't know why there's a chapter break here. This is one of those illogical chapter breaks in the Bible. Um, As you know, verses and chapters were added about in the 1500s, but should go with the preceding. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. A master of ceremonies said to the guest of honor at a, a retirement dinner, As a token of our appreciation, we have created this special gold watch to serve as a reminder of your many years with the company. It needs a lot of winding up. It's always late. And at a quarter to five every day, it stops working. (laughs) You know the saying, good help is hard to find. I thought to myself, I wonder where that saying came from. And then I realized it came because good help is hard to find. Good jobs are hard to find too, though, aren't they? Imagine an ad that said, help wanted, menial job, no pay except for board and room, no chance for advancement, no benefits, no days off, no vacation, on call, 24 hours a day. Once accepted for employment, the management has the right to beat and even kill you. Any takers? Some of you are thinking, I work there. Uh, (laughs) But that description, I think, fits the situation of many to whom Paul wrote this letter, many in the Colossian church who were slaves. 
In that culture, slaves were not viewed as people. They were just a piece of property, a a tool to be used by the owner, and they had no rights. And in our text, Paul shows how Christian slaves and masters should relate to one another. Interestingly, Paul devotes more to this topic than he does to the relationships between husbands and wives, which we would put up there on the scale, or parents and children, uh, same thing. Probably he did that because along with this letter, he was sending back a short little letter that you have in your New Testament called Philemon, and uh, it was carried by a man named Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, He came in contact in God's providence with the Apostle Paul when he was in prison in Rome, and Paul was sending Onesimus back to his master, who legally could have killed him for running away. And um, Paul wants uh, the slaves and the masters to know how in the Lord to relate to one another. Slavery was viewed, the slaves were viewed as part of the household in that culture, and that's why this is tacked on to the advice to wives and husbands and parents and children that we've already looked at. I believe Paul wanted to make sure that no slave took advantage of conversion to say, well, I don't have to serve my master, and that no master... um, would abuse his authority over his slave. Now that raises a thorny question, though, and that is, well, why didn't Paul just attack the institution of slavery itself? It's an evil institution. Why didn't he encourage slaves? Resist uh, your masters. This is a, a system that needs to come down. Why didn't he denounce all who called themselves Christians and yet owned slaves. Now, I can only answer briefly. More is written on this, of course. Uh, One thing is we need to be careful to approach the subject from the milieu of the first century and not from our own perch here in the um, 21st century. Um, It was an institution that permeated the culture then. Uh, It is estimated half of the Roman world were slaves. So it was in, woven into the very fabric of their society. Um, one authority, J.B. Lightfoot, he was a well-known Greek scholar in the 19th century. Um, he said, I am indebted, uh, or I should say I am indebted to his treatment of it. He said this, to prohibit slavery was to tear society into shreds. It it was that ingrained in that culture. It would have resulted in a bloody slave war. Um, There would have been a lot of loss of human life. It's not certain whether the outcome would have been favorable. Because at this point in history, Christianity was not a major public force. It was viewed as kind of a if it was even known at all, as a splinter sect off of Judaism. And if it had identified itself with an anti-slavery movement and that movement had been crushed in a bloody war, it would have been the death knell for Christianity. 
even if it had won and achieved its objective, uh, you would have half of the population now with no employment and maybe no way to get employment, and so there would have been mass social chaos. Paul's approach, rather, was to lay down these universal principles that eventually undermined the entire institution of slavery and led to its demise. Um, In that day, Roman slave owners had come to view work as demeaning. And Paul, when he writes, elevates work. As you know, he himself made tents, um, and he worked. And so he elevates all work, whether it's manual labor or management, by saying that whatever we do, we should do heartily as for the Lord and not for men. He taught, as we saw back in Colossians 3.11, that in Christ there is no slave nor free. Um, We are all one in Christ Jesus. And so he established the personhood of slaves, which was radical, the equality of slaves in Christ with their masters. He tells Philemon that he is to accept Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a beloved brother in Christ. Again, this is radical stuff in that culture. And um, he didn't stop by telling slaves to do their work well, but he goes on again and tells the masters, treat your slaves fairly and, you know, with justice and kindness and so on, reminding them they have a master in heaven to whom they are accountable. I believe history has proven Paul's approach to be wise because, as you know, Slavery is at least legally outlawed worldwide today. Um, In England, you know the story of William Wilberforce, who for decades labored to get legislation passed. Finally, just before um, he died, he got that passed in England in the early 19th century. In America, as you know, it took the Civil War to get slavery outlawed in our country, Um, There still today, as we know, though, are many slaves. Many of them are women and children in the sex industry. And it is Christians who are on the forefront of getting that outlawed. And hopefully that will happen. But Paul's commands, though, I think are applicable to us, even though we are not slaves and masters. It's applicable to Christian employees and employers, and so he's showing us how Christ's lordship should affect our relationships in the workplace. And to sum it up, he's saying that when Christ is lord of the workplace, employees will work heartily, and employers will be just and fair. So Christianity isn't just a nice thing for Sunday only, but it applies every day of the week, And whether you're an employee or an employer, I believe if you practice what Paul spells out here, you will have a platform for witness in your job situation, wherever you're at, and whether, again, you're an employee or employer. So the first thing to note is that we all must make Christ the Lord of our workplace. Uh, He underscores this point by repeating the word Lord Five times in our text, notice in your Bible, verse 22, fearing the Lord. Verse 23, do your work heartily as for 
the Lord. Uh, Verse 24, from the Lord you will receive the reward. Verse 24 again, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And then you don't see it in the English text, but in the Greek text in chapter 4, verse 1, the word master is the same Greek word that has been translated Lord, uh, where he says, you too have a master or Lord in heaven. So clearly, he wants us to know Christ is Lord of the workplace, and our relationship with him should transform how we perform on the job, whether we're employees or employers. Four implications of that I'd like you to consider. First one is making Christ the Lord of your workplace is important because that's your mission field. Your workplace is where you bear witness for Christ most likely, most of the time. Um, Paul calls these slaves, and they were regarded again as just a piece of property or a disposable tool. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So you have to ask the question, well, where and, and when did they serve him? I mean, their lives were dominated by being slaves. 80 to 100 hours or more a week, they were on call 24-7. They were serving their masters, so they didn't have free time, as we know it, to go out and serve the Lord some way. Even as far as serving at church, they probably were somewhat restricted in how often they could gather with the saints on the Lord's day. So where did they serve the Lord Christ? And I believe the answer is they served him while they were performing their duties as slaves on the job. And so by their distinctive work habits and by their uh, occasional verbal witness, I believe they were Christ's representatives and they were missionaries on the job. There's a wonderful story in the Old Testament, you may recall, about Naaman. He was a Syrian general, and he had leprosy. And it probably was not identical with what we call leprosy today, Hansen's disease. But still, it was a serious skin disorder, and there was no cure. And Naaman had a little Hebrew girl who was their slave in the family. And she told her, uh, Naaman's wife about the prophet Elisha in Israel, and that if her master would go there, he could be healed. And Naaman went. At first, he was offended by Elisha's uh, simplistic solution, go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. And then one of Naaman's servants said, well, why not try it? You know, maybe it'll work. So he went, and he did it, and he was instantly healed. But, you know, it's just interesting. Here's a little slave girl in uh, Syria, and she's bearing witness to the God of Israel. Chuck Swindoll uh, tells a story about when he spoke once at a family camp, and the theme of the week was the importance of God's hand in every calling, every occupation. And uh, he encouraged every Christian to recognize that your vocation is your ministry, Well, at the end of the week, a man came up to share how much the week had meant to him and his family, and Swindoll was there along with the camp director who asked this man, "Uh, well, what do you do for a living? And the man replied, "Um, 
what's my work? He said, I'm an ordained plumber. And uh, Chuck goes on to say, you know, there was an ordained carpenter before him, and his name was Jesus. And uh, he was a carpenter for 30 years before he started preaching. But the point is, wherever you're at, whatever you do, uh, you have an opportunity to reach people that I don't. I'll never meet them. Uh, Missionaries aren't going to come into your field because you're it. You're the missionary. You're there as a representative of Christ. And, uh, you know, they should see something different about you. Now, on the job, of course, you have to limit how much verbally you can say and do. I just read uh, in World Magazine about a man who was at Jet Propulsion Lab in California, and he was fired because he handed a fellow employee a uh, DVD on creation. And that was enough to have him terminated, and he lost a wrongful termination lawsuit. But on the job, you should be different. You don't join in laughing at the dirty jokes. If you're a guy, you don't join the other guys when they're making lewd comments about a woman and her physical anatomy. Uh, you, You don't join the gripe sessions against the boss or the employment. You don't go around running others down behind their back. You're honest on the job. You're fair. Uh, people are going to look at you and go, you know, you're different. You're different. And so pray for opportunities, whether it's through your work habits or on a break maybe or in, uh, off the job, you have an opportunity for witness. One of our members got in trouble for witnessing on a break, and he wasn't really witnessing. He was just talking to a fellow employee, and uh, someone overheard his comment that he believed that uh, homosexuality is sin, and that was enough to gain a reprimand. So we're, we're living in those kind of times, but that's your mission field. That's the point. A second thing to note here is that making Christ the Lord of your work, is a matter of the heart and not of outward show. Paul tells these slaves in verse 22, do your work not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And then for emphasis, he repeats in the very next verse, whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men. In other words, they weren't supposed to just put on a good show when the boss was around uh, and then grumble with the other slaves the rest of the time when nobody was there. And they weren't just to really work hard when the master was around and then slack off and goof off when he was gone, but rather as Christ was their Lord and he's always present, they were to do their work from the heart unto the Lord And that would show in their job performance. But the Bible throughout shows true Christianity is a matter of the heart. If you haven't in your heart trusted in Christ, you're not a Christian. You can paste Christian behavior on an unsaved heart. And you look Christian, but your heart is not right with God. And so all of us have to come before the Lord, acknowledge our sin, trust in Christ, experience the new birth, and then 
from that changed heart, our behavior changes. In the short book of Titus, Paul instructs there regarding Christian slaves in Titus 2, 9 and 10, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, that is stealing things on the job, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And the point is, if God is our Savior, then it should show uh, from the heart our behavior will work its way out on the job. A third thing to note here is that making Christ the Lord of your work means that you're working primarily for him. He's your boss. He's the big boss over everything. So even if your boss owns the company, he's not the final boss. Jesus is your boss. And um, that's important in how you work. Dr. Howard Hendricks was one of my seminary professors, and uh, I think Stan had him also. But one time he told a story about he was on a flight, and there was a very obnoxious man who was complaining about every little nitpicky thing he could think of on the flight. And each time the stewardess responded very graciously, very kindly to this man. And so after watching this for some time, Hendricks called the stewardess over and he complimented her on the way she dealt with this man. And he said, could I get your name so that I could um, commend you to the company president? And the woman responded and said, well, thank you, sir. But she said, I don't work for American Airlines. And he looked at her and she had an American Airlines stewardess outfit on and she had the American Airlines name tag thing on. And so he kind of sputtered out, well, you don't? And she said, well, no, sir. She said, I I work for Jesus Christ. American Airlines just pays the freight. Great witness for Christ. But wherever you work, it changes the nature of the job. If you say, I don't work for that ornery cuss of a boss. I work for Jesus Christ. And he's always a loving and fair and kind boss. And then finally, just note here that making Christ the Lord of your work means that you focus on that eternal perspective and not on the temporal. In verse 24, Paul adds, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Now, that was a staggering thing for slaves because they had no property rights, they had no inheritance rights, Uh, They couldn't leave anything to their children. And so in that society, that's a radical concept where Paul is saying, even if you're disenfranchised here and you have no rights and you'll never have anything on this earth, your reward awaits you in eternity. And then he adds in verse 25, and scholars debate this verse, who does it apply to? But Paul says, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Uh, Some commentators apply that to the slaves as a warning, some that it applies to the bosses, some say it applies to both, which it probably does, but it seems to me that they're missing the context here. 
in the context, Paul is encouraging these slaves that even if they are wrongly treated here, uh, they don't need to worry because they will be rewarded by the Lord. And so it seems to me he's basically saying, don't worry about those who mistreat you and seem to escape any consequences. The Lord will repay them someday, and he won't be partial, even if they're uh, some big hotshot now, and the Lord will reward you someday. So he's saying, get your focus on the eternal perspective, not on the temporal Now, critics, of course, would come back and say, well, that's just that pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die stuff. And, you know, if anybody ever raises that objection with you, Christianity is just pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die, here's what you say to them. Yes, you will die, and the question is, do you want pie or no pie? (laughs) I mean, we're all going to die. That's the fact. And either you get rewards or you get penalties, you know? And the Bible promises great eternal rewards to Christians when we die. Um, And and Paul um, is is saying here, you know, even if as a slave you're treated cruelly and, you know, you have no reward here, don't worry. Don't worry. God will make up for it. And so what he's saying is, as Christians, we have to put all of our eggs in the heaven basket, the eternity basket. Many years ago, I was teaching through 1 Corinthians in California, and and I came to chapter 15, verse 19, and it really hit me between the eyes where Paul says this, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And it just struck me, and I thought, is that verse true of me? Is that verse true of most American Christians? And I thought, no, it's not, because I have it good here. You know, I I mean, I I wouldn't call it my best life now, like uh, one famous author does, but um, basically, American Christians want to know, how can following Christ give me a happy home, How can it give me a successful career? How can it help me raise my kids, you know, wisely and well? Uh, We want it all here and now. And Christianity, of course, supplies answers for all of those things. I'm not denying that it does. But our view is, heaven? Yeah, it's kind of a nice afterthought, isn't it? Maybe, you know, that'll be okay. But it's not crucial. We can't say with Paul, if it's just this life, pity us. Piteous. And you go, well, why did he say that? And the answer is, he was being persecuted. He was being persecuted. Read all that he suffered for the gospel. And you know, I just read in Voice of the Martyrs about our brothers and sisters in Syria. This poor man, his daughters were taken away as sex slaves by ISIS. His son was murdered. He lost his home. He lost his job. He lost all his property. And he's living as a refugee. If that happened to us, heaven is a pretty good thing, isn't it? Heaven is where the rewards come. And and we need to have that perspective, even though we may have it pretty good here. But to apply it to the job, maybe you're in a dead-end job right now where you're going, man, what a drag. 
Or maybe your boss is unfair and, you know, he's just a tyrant to work for or whatever the situation. Well, there's nothing wrong with trying to better your job, get out from there and get another job. That's fine. But what I'm saying, what Paul is saying, I think, is in the meanwhile, be the best employee you can be as a witness for Christ because your job is your mission field. So you make Christ the Lord of your work so that you, he shines through you on the work, in the workplace, mainly through your behavior, occasionally through your words. Then secondly, note that when Christ is Lord, Paul says employees will work heartily. To work heartily literally is to work from the soul. Well, what does that mean? I think three things. First of all, it means obeying your employer. And you're thinking, wait a minute. This was written to slaves. I'm not a slave. Obey my, my employer. Uh, I read about a, a company that does lunchtime seminars for the employees and different topics. And there was a memo sent out uh, advertising the next session that read this. Lunch and learn seminar. Who's controlling your life? And then in parentheses, get your manager's approval before attending. <laughs> Well, Paul doesn't mean obey your masters if they tell you to do sinful things. That's, I think, a given. Sometimes on the job, it's awkward. Your boss will say, uh, tell them I'm not in, and you know good and well he's in, or lie for him in some other way, or maybe more seriously, because it's criminal, uh, he asks you to falsify some financial records because he's covering up an illegal operation. You, you can't go there. You have to tactfully explain to your boss, I'm a Christian, and uh, you can trust that I will be honest in every situation. I'm never going to lie to you or for you. I'm never going to uh, rip you off financially. And it may cost you your job. I don't know. But you have a good conscience, which is worth the loss of the job. But I think Paul is saying, apart from those wrongful things, do what your boss asks you to do, cheerfully. Uh, Secondly, working heartily means doing quality work. He says one should work not with, literally it reads, eye service as those who merely please men. In other words, you're not just working to impress the boss uh, and then goofing off when he's not around because your boss is always there. Christ is your boss, and he's on the job all the time. And so even if it never shows to men, you work as under the Lord. I saw a cartoon, and it showed a perfectly straight tower of Pisa, you know, the leaning tower of Pisa, and the builder standing in front of it, and he says to a friend, yeah, I skimped a little on the foundation, but no one will ever know. (laughs) Well, it does come out, doesn't it, eventually? So I think working heartily means doing good work, quality work. And then finally, working heartily means having a positive attitude on the job. When Paul says sincerity of heart, it means literally singleness of purpose or undivided service. And it it refers to a worker who is concentrating on his work because his heart is in it. Uh, The word heartily means from the soul, and it's looking at your inner motivation. 
And it certainly would have been easy for a slave to gripe about his working conditions, to gripe about his situation in life and his unfair treatment from his master and so on. But if they're doing their work heartily, as for the Lord rather than men, with sincerity of heart, they would have a positive and a cheerful spirit, even in a grim situation, and people would see the difference. Paul writes about that to the Philippians in Philippians 2, 14 and, and 15, where he says, do all things. Wish he had said, do most things. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. If you're around someone when all the employees are grumbling and this guy is cheerful, he stands out like a light in the darkness. It's especially true those of you who are in the military or have been in the military. It just seems like all soldiers complain. And if instead of complaining, you're cheerful and have a positive spirit, they're going to say, what is with this guy? Now, one thorny subject I just want to touch on briefly and maybe stimulate your thinking on before we leave this. What about Christians and trade unions? And I'm not going to give you any answers. I'm going to give you some questions. And you can probably think of more. Uh, it's controversial. I think this is one of those areas where we have to give grace to one another. Some Christians will come down on one side. Some Christians may come down on another side. All I'm asking you to do is think it through biblically as best you can, and whatever conviction you have, have it as to the Lord. But here are three questions that I came up with. First of all, by joining the union, can I maintain a cooperative relationship with the management? Unions, as you know, are typically adversarial toward the management. And if you join the adversarial team, can you still obey Paul's command to work with a cheerful, cooperative spirit with the employer? Second question can I join the union and still maintain my accountability to God? Because God is your ultimate employer. And um, you just have to ask, is this a wrongful yoke with unbelievers? Now, I realize by taking a job at an unbelieving company, you're in some sense yoked with unbelievers. But um, when you join a union, sometimes the union's values are so out of sync with Christian values, you have to ask, uh, am I being unequally yoked? For example, sometimes a union will devote a good portion of your union dues to support groups that are pro-abortion or groups that are promoting the LBGT kind of agenda. Can, as a Christian, you do that? It's just a question. And then, third question, is the motivation for collective bargaining greed or just basic fair treatment. Again, I think it's legitimate to lobby for fair treatment on the job, for safe working conditions, fair pay. I think it's wrong, though, to go on strike for nitpicky little deals or sometimes just to justify their existence. Unions say, we got to have a strike every so often to get our wages boosted up or we're not doing our job. 
Uh, I don't think that's right, and so you have to weigh that. Well, again, you can probably come up with a lot more questions, but I'm just urging you, think that through as best you can biblically and do it, whichever side you come out on, do it as unto the Lord. So Paul doesn't just, though, address the slaves. He also has a word to the masters. The longest portion is to the slaves, so I've spent more time on it. But he does, in verse 1, say that when Christ is Lord, employers will be just and fair. He says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So justice concerns giving someone what is legally due them. Uh, fairness, I think, is, is simply treating others in a manner that is considered uh, proper. I think the golden rule would be a good rule of thumb for fairness. In other words, if I were an employee, how would I want to be treated? Well, treat your employees that way. That's fair. Uh, the Christian employer, Paul says, should recognize and remember you too have an authority. And one day, and every employer will stand before God and give an account of how he has treated others on the job. Was he arrogant or was he humble? Did he abuse his authority for his own advancement or did he use his authority to give good leadership to the whole company? Did he listen compassionately to the needs of his employees when they came with a gripe? Or, or did he put the goal of making money ruthlessly above other people? Uh, did he set an example of integrity, honesty, that kind of thing on the job? Or did he compromise and then cover it up? Um, every Christian employer or a Christian manager needs to remember the Lord in heaven is the one to whom I will finally give account. So whether you're a Christian employer or employee, um, I believe Paul is saying that making Christ the Lord of your workplace is really at the heart of your witness for Christ. That's where you bear witness mostly for him. In Robert Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons, which is about Sir Thomas More and Henry VIII, you may remember the story. Eventually, Sir Thomas More was executed by Henry because he would not approve of Henry's divorce uh, from one of his wives. I don't know which one. Um, but in the play, Sir Thomas More urges a restless underling to become a fine teacher. If I was, asked the ambitious young man, if I was a fine teacher, who would know it? And More replies, you, your pupils, your friends, God, and he adds, not a bad public, that. And so who's going to know if you're a conscientious and hardworking employee or if you're a sensitive and fair employer? Well, you and those you work with and those you live with and God and not a bad audience or public, that. And so Paul is saying, take Christ to work with you, that he deserves to be the Lord of your workplace. Let's bow together.
Again, the basis for everything I've said today is that you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And uh, if you're here today and you thought Christianity was just a matter of being moral, you don't understand the heart of the Christian faith is having your sins forgiven, receiving eternal life as God's free gift when you come to the cross of Christ and trust in what he did there. The Bible says God sent Jesus, his only son, his eternal son, to take on human flesh and to bear the penalty we deserve on the cross. And that God then offers eternal life, a full pardon for all our sins, as a free gift to all who will simply receive it. And that's his offer to you today. And then from a changed heart, all the things I've talked about today begin to take place. But you begin with God changing your heart through believing in the good news that Christ came to save you, a sinner. Dear Father, I pray that none would go away from here without Jesus as Savior and Lord. I know that some are in difficult situations employment-wise. Some need a job. Some have a job they don't like and need a different job. Some are in difficult places as managers between the ultimate higher-ups and the employees. And in all those difficult places, I ask that Jesus would be Lord and that very practically they would know how to relate on the job in a way that shows Christ to everyone around them. And we ask, Lord, that you would um, give us opportunities for witness that would change others as they come to know the Savior. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.